Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a young woman violated and taken hostage, an entire community of men massacred, many of them, them unarmed and defenseless, killed in their beds, women and children taken from home as looters step over the bodies of the slain to pillage and plunder. The scene in the text that we have before us this morning sounds a lot like the news we've been hearing over the last week. 4,000 years ago, they were doing these kinds of things to each other, human beings. Human nature hasn't changed. The shocking thing in our text this morning, brothers and sisters, is that this is church history. This is our family history. This is on us. What is God teaching us in this dark and horrific chapter? What he's teaching us that sin brings death. That breaking the covenant brings destruction. He's teaching us how we need Christ, who is the sinless covenant keeper, and so follow along in your Bible with me as we go through the chapter. It's easier for you to follow the sermon if you're looking at the verses. Look at verse 1 there. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, went out to see the women of the land. Dinah, the daughter of Leah. The Holy Spirit draws our attention to that fact. Not, not mentioned here is Jacob's daughter, Leah's daughter. Who is Leah? She's the despised wife, the despised mother, and perhaps the despised daughter, because there she goes, a young woman by herself into the city of the pagans. Doesn't look like Jacob is spending a lot of time paying attention to the daughter of his despised wife. Family dynamics are coming back to bite Jacob. She went out to see the women of the land. And of course she would. There's the city with all the exciting stuff that happens in the city. Who wants to hang around in mom's tent? You look out of the tent, all you see are the goats, the sheep. The city has exciting things to see. And of course, you're curious, you're interested. She's a, she's a teen. There are women there with neat clothes and Interesting makeup. Things are attractive. Of course, you're, you're interested. You want to have a look. Now, Dinah is a young woman, but she's not watched over by her father. Her brothers are far away in the field. This is a young girl. She doesn't have men present in her life in the healthy, biblical way that they ought to be present. We learn from this, men, when, when men are not present in the lives of their children, that can bring about a lot of problems. And when there are a lot of problems in the life of young people, often, often you can trace it back to the lack of attention and presence of godly, faithful, loving male figures in their life. Now, Jacob has just built an altar. You remember that at the end of chapter 33? 
It was a beautiful altar with a beautiful name, El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. They had just worshipped. Did you notice as we read through chapter 34 how many times God is mentioned? Zero. No mention of God in this chapter. There are only three chapters in Genesis where God is not mentioned. This chapter, chapter 36, which is the generations of Esau, and chapter 37, where Joseph's brothers are conspiring to kill him or sell him into slavery. Those are the only three chapters in Genesis where God is not mentioned. Well, that says something, brothers and sisters. Jacob brought his family into close contact with the world. And what does Rachel have hidden in her baggage? Remember? The household gods of her father Laban. And so you have here the people of God close to the city of man. And there is a mixture of faith and idolatry in Israel. And what we're seeing here in the dynamic between chapter 33 and chapter 34, between building the altar and then just going out and living as if God doesn't exist, is what a lot of believers do today still. Where there's all kinds of attention to God on Sunday and worship and praise, but Monday is the real world. And we just go and we do our work and we do our studies and we live and we make our decisions as if God doesn't exist. That's not a new thing. 4,000 years ago, people were making the same mistake. So there she goes. She's probably led a pretty sheltered life, brothers and sisters. She's a vulnerable young woman in a city of pagans where sexuality was certainly not treated according to the way that God created it to be. And so Shechem, the prince of that city, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Now, in English, we got to translate it that way, but in the Hebrew, the, the verb lay normally is followed by the word in Hebrew for with, but that's missing in the Hebrew. In English, that would be a very crude way of saying it, wouldn't it? He laid her. But that's the impact of the Hebrew. This is a vile and violent, wicked thing which is done against Dinah. There's one other time in the scripture that we have all of these things together, these same words. That he took, he overpowered, he humiliated, and laid with, without that preposition. And that other time is in 2 Samuel 13, verse 14, where Tamar is violated by her brother Amnon. And there in 2 Samuel, as well as here, look at verse 7, this was a thing that was outrageous in Israel. Such a thing must not be done. So the language here is very similar to the language which condemns the act of Amnon with his sister Tamar later on in Samuel. This is a terrible sexual assault and violation. Now, we're reading this and we wonder how all this... Dinah at this point, and we, we look at verse 3, we do get a clue from the scripture because she's referred to as the young woman, and the word young woman in verse 3 is a word in Hebrew which refers to girls from their birth right up to adolescence, right up to their marriage. So that whole period, 
She's certainly younger than the normal marriageable age of that time, which would have been pretty young. And I'm not going to bore you with all the mathematical calculations, but the data is there. Chapter 37, we know that J Joseph was 17 when he was sold by his brothers. We know that he was six years old when they left Padan Aram. So, so this chapter 34 happens in this window of 11 years. After leaving Laban and Joseph being sold as a slave, there's an 11-year window. It happens somewhere within that. And there are other data that I can bring to bear, but I won't go into it in the sermon. The conclusion that I come to, and that's quite likely, is that Dinah is somewhere between 15 to 18 years old. And his soul was drawn. Look at the, the, the difference there between two and three. Verse two is horror and violence and cruelty and wickedness. And, and then verse three has all these words about love and, and tenderness. It's, it's, it's a stunning contrast here. His soul was drawn. The word here is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 2 when it says a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall, shall cleave to his wife and they will become one flesh. His soul was knit to her. He, 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 he desired her now, not in the vile, disgusting, and wicked, and violent way that he had desired her, but he saw her now as someone whom he desired in a way which was better than the, than the first way. It was, it, he, he wanted to be knit with her properly and not in a sinful, sinful way. And he loved her. He spoke tenderly. The word tenderly here in the Hebrew, he spoke to her heart. Now, the, the scripture doesn't tell us how Dinah was reacting to all of this, especially this change. We don't know. And so that's not the point that the Holy Spirit wants us to get. But there is certainly a very, very big change here in him, different than that change there in Samuel with Amnon and his sister. There he turns to hatred after he has uh, assaulted his sister. And so he says to his dad, verse 4, get me this girl. Now the word girl here is, is a young woman, and, and the, the connection here is that she's under a father's authority. That's the, the import of the word that he uses here. He recognizes that she belongs to a family, and Despite Jacob's carelessness with her, now the scripture reminds us that this is the daughter of Jacob. You see that in verse 3? She's the daughter of Jacob. Jacob has something to say here. And Shechem involves his parents because he wants to do things right now. He wants to do things the right way. Now, verse 5, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. You know, sexual abuse and sexual violence defiles, it, it dishonors. And the guilt and the shame for that is on the perpetrator, the wicked person that did it. It's not on the victim. The victim ought not to feel shame and guilt. It's not on them. But yet that, 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 that dishonor and that defiling causes a harm which is not just physical, it goes deep into the soul and it, it breaks something and those pieces, those pieces hurt. And they need restoration. And part of restoration for those who are sexually violated and abused, part of restoration involves justice. 
justice now on this earth, the justice of men, and if not that, at least certainly the justice of God at the great day of judgment. There will be no wrong that will not be set right. But when you're hurt, when you've been hurt, you've been abused or assaulted or violated sexually, those broken pieces, brothers and sisters, you don't need to keep them in your heart to jab you and, and wound you on an ongoing basis. God cleanses the defilement. God renews. God restores. God heals. God puts the broken pieces together. And I've mentioned before in sermons the Japanese art of kintsugi, which is where they get broken pottery and they put the broken pieces back together with gold so that in the end you have this beautiful, restored piece which is more precious and more valuable than it was before it was broken. That's the way that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit cleanses, heals, restores, and renews. You are precious, you are loved, you are whole, you are perfect in Christ. No matter what people have done to you, the Lord Jesus can and will and does restore you. Now, Jacob is not very much a Christ figure here in verse 5 because he hears what has happened to his daughter. He doesn't come to her defense, doesn't try to heal or restore her. He keeps his peace. He held his peace. He, he just stays quiet. He doesn't say anything. And that's, that's often what we see with great and egregious wickedness and violence, especially when vulnerable people are, are sexually assaulted and hurt. It happened with Tamar as well where David, the men in her life, they didn't say what they had to say. They didn't do what they had to do. So Jacob here, he held his peace. Oh, this, is, this is shameful, brothers and sisters. When, when Joseph was killed, or when he thought Joseph was killed, he really reacted with great emotion. When Benjamin had to go to Egypt, he was afraid of losing Benjamin. He was really emotional about that. But here his daughter has been violated and he holds his peace. That's a crying shame that our father Jacob did that. It is the brothers, Dinah's brothers, who are outraged, and especially the brothers from the same mother. So Simeon and Levi are brothers who are sons of Leah. They're outraged. And this is seen as something which is an outrageous thing. Look at verse 7. In Israel, for such a thing must not be done. This is not just a personal thing against Dinah. It's not just a personal thing against Dinah and her family, against Jacob. This is an offense against the covenant community. This is an offense against the people of God. This is the offense of the city of Shechem against the nation of Israel. This is a political problem as well. Well, how are we going to deal with this problem? Well, verses 8 through to 12, Shechem, the city of man, the world, comes with a solution. Let's, let's, let's figure out how to solve this problem. And, and this, the world offers here in these verses 8 through to 12 things which are very similar to what God has promised. They offer, you can have the land, you can have all kinds of wealth, you can have all kinds of kids and descendants, just become one with us. You see what they're doing? They're saying, why should you live by the promises of God? 
Why don't you take things into your own hands and become one of the peoples of the land? Just merge with us. It's kind of like the devil saying to Jesus, just fall down and worship me and we can do it. Take a shortcut which avoids the cross. Fall down and worship me, I'll give you the world. Why go through all that bother? That's what's happening right here in verses 8 through to 12, brothers and sisters. This is an, an attack of the devil on the people of God who ought to live by the promises of God and by the covenant of God. And as Hamor is offering this solution to become merged with the world, Shechem can't hold himself back. He, he really, really wants to be married to Dinah, and he says to her father and to her brothers, I'll give you a great big bonus payment, way more than the regular bride price. I'll put another gift on top of it. Well, it all looks very attractive, but what does the Bible say? Deuteronomy 7 Verse 1, if you turn there in your Bible, Deuteronomy 7, 1. This is later, but it shows God's, how God saw the Hivites. Because remember, these guys are Hivites. See that in verse 2? They're Hivites. So Deuteronomy 7, 1, when the Lord God brings you into the land, you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you. And then he lists a whole bunch, including the Hivites there, second last. And then look at verse 2, when the Lord your God gives them over to you, you defeat them, you must devote them to a complete destruction, you shall make no covenant with them, shall no mercy, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods, then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Now that's later, when the, the, the measure of the sin of the inhabitants of the land has reached its fullness. But certainly right here and right now, that was also the case, that they ought not to intermarry. I mean, why did Jacob go all the way to Padan Aram to find a wife? Because he ought not marry with the inhabitants of the land. That's a clear thing. Everybody knows that. Jacob knows that, and all his sons know that. But what do they do? Verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem deceitfully. Deceitfully. Now, the sons of Jacob answer. Jacob is silent again. He's just sitting there listening, just looking. He's the leader, he's the patriarch, he's quiet. His sons are taking the initiative. And they answer deceitfully. Now, when the Holy Spirit puts that word in verse 13, deceitfully, that draws our attention because rarely in the narratives and the historical records of the patriarchs, rarely is a word used which passes judgment on their speech or on their acts. Normally, the Holy Spirit says, well, this is what happened, and we got to draw our own conclusions. But here, the Holy Spirit's saying, hey, hey, look at this. This is bad. Deceitfully. You see that? That's bad. Deceit is something which doesn't belong to the people of God. And so there's this great big red alert here in verse 13. Something bad is going down. And then we see it as we dig into it. Verse 14. We, we can't do this. We can't give our sister to an uncircumcised. Why not? Because that would be a disgrace to us. It's all about us and it's all horizontal, and God is not invoked. They, they don't say we can't mix with the people of the land because God has told us to be a separate nation, a holy people. It's just like, well, you know, this is the way we do things. It's just outward. It's just superficial. It's all about us. And then they make it worse, brothers and sisters, by taking the holy covenant sign of God's love and faithfulness, circumcision, the sign of the covenant, and they use it as a weapon of deceit and betrayal and hate. 
That's shocking. That's really, really shocking. To give you an idea of how shocking that is, it's like us inviting an enemy to church and say, hey, let's baptize you. You can be part of the people of God. And then we baptize them with a toxin so that they slowly die over the next few weeks. What an what a incredibly wicked thing to even imagine doing. But that's what these guys are doing here. They're using the covenant sign to hurt, to betray, and to kill. I'm going to look at verse 16. We'll give our daughters to you. We'll take your daughters. We'll dwell with you. We will become one people. What are, this is, these are the leaders of God's people. These are the 12 patriarchs, the, the men who give their names to the 12 tribes. These are the foundations of the Old Testament church. And they're saying, hey, you know what? Genesis 3.15, that little thing where God said, I'm going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I'm going to put this blessed enmity and conflict between the church and the world so that a church remains and exists until the coming of the Lord Jesus, the holy seed of the woman. They're saying, yeah, that whole big messianic thing and the division, the antithesis, the contrast between world and church, let's just paper over that. Let's just come together and short-circuit God's eternal plan to redeem for himself a church chosen to everlasting life. Let's become one people. You know what happened last time when the, the sons of God went into the daughters of men? You remember that before the flood? When the church mixed with the world, the Lord said, I'm going to pull the plug on this. This isn't going to happen. And he sent the flood and he wiped, he destroyed the entire world. This is an attack on the gospel itself. Well, Hamor and Shechem don't see it as that because they're not educated in the covenant of God and the word of God, they think it's a great idea. So there they go, verses 18 through to 24, they go to the gate of the city. The gate of the city is like the, the parliament or the, or the court, depending on what's being discussed. All the men get together. It's the assembly of the citizens with the prince leading it, and they discuss it. And you may think to yourselves, why would the city accept? Why would the men accept being circumcised? Well, circumcision was not unknown to other nations around it wasn't just the Israelites who circumcised. Others did as well. And so they actually decide to do it. Now look at verse 21. These men are at peace with us. So, so they're believing the covenant words that Jacob's sons have spoken to them. And they're talking about the condition of this covenant or this alliance, the condition for marriage, the condition for friendly 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 and peaceful relations is that they ought to be circumcised. And then they, they go to the heart of the matter. This is, this is the way to convince people to do something. Verse 23, you tell them what they're going to get out of it, right? So they say, verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, all their beasts be ours? If you do this, it'll hurt for a little bit, but you'll get very rich. Let's do it. Now, they, they don't say what their master plan is here. I mean, obviously, they want the, the stuff. They want the material advantage. But Shechem wants a wife out of this. And they don't even mention that. They don't mention that to the people. They, they just use whatever will... Um, they'll get the people to vote for what they think will give them material advantage. Well, that 
is interesting. That's 4,000 years ago, but politicians still do the same things nowadays, don't they? they? They have their personal agendas and their personal desires, but they sell to the populace a, a something which, which will convince the populace to vote for them because they will get some advantage out of it themselves. Well, that's what Hamor and Shechem do, and they're successful. Look at verse 24, all who went out, every male, all who went, three times it's emphasized every single guy is in on this. And they're all circumcised. Now, circumcision without an aesthetic in the ancient world, it can be done fairly cleanly. They did have the certain medications and so they could use. But the third day, probably peak swelling and inflammation and pain on the third day. So Simeon and Levi know their biology and their science because they picked the right day when these men are not inclined to go running around and defend themselves. And they come upon them. Simeon and Levi. Why Simeon and Levi? Well, they're the sons of Leah, but Reuben is. Reuben's the firstborn. But Reuben, Reuben, we learn from chapter 37, verse 21, when they want to kill Joseph. Reuben says, no, don't shed blood. Reuben is a peacemaker. He's averse to bloodshed. Simeon and Levi, no, they like it. These guys are in their early 20s, and they're... They're, they're thirsty for blood, and they go and they kill and they destroy an entire city of men. Then all the other sons of Jacob, even the younger ones, the teens, they come upon the slain. They come upon the slain. They, they come into that city strewn with dead bodies. They step over dead and dying people. They steal and they plunder and they pillage. Why? Verse 27. Because they, plural, had defiled their sister. They see this as a sin, not of Shechem alone, but of the entire city. The guilt is on the city, in their view. Are they right about that? Is there communal guilt? Well, there would be if the city had said, oh, our prince just violated a young defenseless woman, and we're okay with that. But that's not what the city did. The city came and tried to make it right as best they could. So There is no communal guilt here. But in their vengeance and anger, Simeon and Levi destroy an entire community. Now, sometimes God commands that to happen. When Achan broke faith in Joshua 7, then he and his entire family were consigned to destruction. God sometimes consigns entire nations to destruction. When the, 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 um, the, the iniquity of the nations who lived in Canaan was filled to its measure, as they, as, they, as they murdered children in their religious sacrifices and as they lived in, in unspeakable wickedness for century upon century upon century, finally God says, I'm going to wipe you out. I've warned you enough. And then the, God also wiped the entire world out in the flood. Total destruction, men, women, and children. So these things happen sometimes, but they happen by the command of God and they happen according to the just judgment of God. But here in this chapter, there is no command of God. It's just the vengeance of men. It's vicious revenge. It's not justice. And look at verse 30 there. Then Jacob said, what's Jacob going to say about this, brothers and sisters? He's been quiet the whole time, hasn't he? What does he say now? He doesn't reprove them for their bloodthirsty wickedness. Why not? Does he think it's okay? Oh, no, he doesn't. Turn in your Bible to chapter 49, verse 5. This is a, many years later when Jacob's about to die, 
and he's blessing his sons. Listen to the blessing on Simeon and Levi here. Chapter 49, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Jacob's angry. He's angry with their accursed anger, but he doesn't say anything. Why not? We've got a bunch of hot-headed young men here with swords in their hand dripping with blood. He doesn't dare. He doesn't dare to confront his sons. And so he tries to find a way to reprove them without making them more angry. He says, look, guys, you brought trouble on us, on me, but now the nations around can join together and destroy us. When he says, you've brought trouble on us, see that phrase there in verse 30? Throughout the Old Testament, that phrase is used in the context of breaking covenants. You've broken your word with the people of the land. You've broken a sacred covenant. And now all the other tribes and all the other peoples and all the other cities, they're going to get together. They're going to wipe us out. We've just, we've just escaped Esau with 400 men. We can't deal with a whole pile of city-states with their armies. We can't save ourselves. We're going to be wiped out. And typical young men, hot-headed and angry, they, they don't want to think about politics, and they don't want to think about big questions of military strategy. They're like, he shouldn't treat our sister that way. And they were right. He shouldn't have but they still don't give a justification for their reaction, do they? Now, brothers and sisters, this is a dark chapter. What is God teaching us here? Well, he's teaching us that the wages of sin is death. You can carry the name. You can carry out worship, but you can live in the world. You can live as the world, and you can end up acting worse than the world. Covenant unfaithfulness, living as though God is not present, living just forgetting about God's principles and God's promises and God's commands leads to pain, it leads to death, it leads to chaos and destruction. And, and what we see in this chapter is the consequence of covenant after covenant after covenant being broken and despised. Jacob's covenant with Leah, he ought to have loved her as his wife, he despised her, and that that, that, comes, that, that filters down to the children. He's careless about her children. And you can see that in the, in the way that Simeon and Levi confront their, their father. The marriage covenant that Jacob's family made with Hamor and Shechem. They made a promise. They made a covenant. They broke it. They lied. They betrayed. They were treacherous. The political covenant of peace that Israel made with the city of Shechem. Using the holy covenant sign of God's faithfulness, they betrayed that city to death. It was incredibly treacherous. And all of this now at the end of the chapter leads to a situation where if the other cities stand up and deal with this and, and, and bring justice, there's the threat now of the extermination of the Holy Seed, the line of the Messiah, the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an existential threat to the people of God. Because if there's no Christ, there's no salvation but only eternal judgment. Once again, as often in the Old Testament, the line to the Christ is hanging by a thread. Now, 
as we read this chapter, we see the truth of Scripture. No other ancient text is this brutally honest. These are the patriarchs. These are the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel. They don't come out looking good. Moses doesn't shrink from describing Levi, his ancestor, as an angry, bloodthirsty, treacherous murderer. This is astonishing. You don't do that in the ancient text. You always write your side up as being really good and the other side as being really bad. But Moses is honest. What is God telling us here, brothers and sisters? He's telling us that the line of the Christ is not evolutionary. It's not as though every generation people became better and more holy and more godly until finally they were like a super race. And from that super Christian, super godly race was finally born to top it all off, the Messiah of the world. That's not how it happened. Jesus is born from a line of murderers and adulterers and betrayers and the greedy and the treacherous and the unfaithful and even prostitutes and the incestuous. That's Jesus' line of ancestry. The holy line is not holy. And what God is driving home to us again is how we need Christ. Because he is our righteousness. And he is our holiness. And he is our innocence. How we need his blood. So it's good news, brothers and sisters, for Murderers, adulterers, betrayers, the greedy, the treacherous, the unfaithful, the prostitutes, and even the incestuous. There's good news that, that Christ can save even the most vile sinner. Now here we are in Shechem, chapter 34. It's the center of the promised land. It's where Abram built an altar when he came. It's where Joshua later on will renew the covenant. Shechem is nestled right between two mountains, very close together, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, the Mount of the Covenant blessing and the covenant curse. What God is showing us in this chapter is that covenant breaking leads to destruction, death, and despair. What hope do we have as sinners? Well, we have none in ourselves. But we carry, we, we carry the sign of the covenant, but we can't keep it. We can't live by it. And so Genesis 34, brothers and sisters, cries out for Christ. It cries out for the Redeemer. Our soul awaits the great Redeemer. How we need Jesus. And there, right in the middle of the chapter, did you see verse 7 there? I asked the children, count how many times God's name comes in the chapter. There in verse 7, a little glimmer of light, because it mentions the word Israel. Israel, God prevails. God Wins a tiny glimmer of light in the darkness despite all the sin and unworthiness. This is still God's people. And no matter how much they fail, no matter how much they fall, his plan will stand. His salvation will come. Christ will conquer our sin and our unfaithfulness. God wins. Christ conquers, not because of us, but despite us. And so the way of Father Jacob is the way of deceit and death. The way of Christ is the way of the truth and the life. I want to end with just a brief look at Isaiah 53 with you in this connection. Isaiah 53, verse 4. The Messiah is spoken of here. 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That word afflicted there, you see it? It's the word humiliated in our text. It's what happened to Dinah. She was humiliated. 
And Jesus takes on himself our humiliation, our defilement, our dishonor. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You know, there, there go our fathers, the patriarchs, and, and they go and pierce and wound and, and kill because they were offended. But Jesus says to his enemies, he says to us, because while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He says, pierce me, injure me, kill me, crush me for what you have done wrong. I'll take it. He took our offenses against him and he suffered the consequences. And then verse nine, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He took our violence he took our deceit and he suffered in our place the judgment that we deserve to suffer. So brothers and sisters, Christ is the only answer for us and for the world, for Israel, for Gaza. The way of Christ is not revenge, it is reconciliation. The way of Christ is not death, it is life. The way of Christ is not war, it is peace. The way of Christ is not hatred, it is love. And our text gives us a little window. If you want to see the way which is not of Christ, look through this window and see the utter devastation and despair, the unending cycle of hatred and violence and death. That's all the world has to offer. So how can we possibly want to live in proximity to it as Jacob foolishly did? Well, we sang Psalm 73. We're going to sing it in just a, a moment and, and turn there, if you could, to Psalm 73. The psalmist, he's saying, well, here I am following the covenant and life is boring and the unbelievers are having all the fun and all the wealth. And so he's, he wants to get world adjacent. He wants to come close to the world and start dipping his toe in the world. The unbeliever has so much freedom. He has so much fun, and, and it looks so attractive. It's like Dinah thought, right? It's kind of fun. It's kind of exciting, kind of interesting. No, it's not, brothers and sisters. The way of the world is death. And so the psalmist wakes up halfway to the psalm. He says, you know what? I see where this goes. Lord, you alone are my heart's desire. I don't want the way of the world. I don't want the wealth of the world. I want God, I want Christ. Look there at verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen.